Well, hello everyone and welcome to this BTOG webinar. It's been ages since we've been with you online and I'm delighted to join you all for this ASCO 2023 and AACR 2023 update. We've had some amazing data presented at these two really important meetings, data which will undoubtedly impact your practice either tomorrow or in the near future. And so let's deep dive into this. We're going to be online for about an hour and a quarter going into the data. And actually, with this type of meeting, what we're really keen to have is your questions. So do make sure during the presentations that you type in your questions into Slido. So welcome to the meeting and on behalf of uh, BTOG, it's absolutely great to be with you. Uh, we're going to have excellent discussions. As you know, Dawn and Gina, who are part of the executive team, are always available for you if you need anything in terms of BTOG's activities. A uh, bit of housekeeping, do make sure that you do type your questions in the control panel. In fact, your questions are really critical to the success. I want you to keep our panelists on their toes. I want you to ask questions to challenge them if you don't agree with their interpretation and ask how this is going to impact on practice. We will send you an e email for your feedback, and that's going to be linked to your certificate of uh, attendance. And we are aiming for this to be accredited by um, the RCP for uh uh, uh, CPD. And uh, it is available online as well for four weeks after the event date until the 10th of July for you to claim your CPD. So here's the agenda. First off, we're going to be um, uh, have a presentation by my colleague, Dr. Tom Newsom-Davis, who's vice chair of the BTOG Steering Committee and consultant medical oncologist at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And he's actually just going to give us an update on everything to do with EGFR mutant lung cancer. There's so much to deep dive into. We'll then be joined by Yvonne Summers, who's medical oncologist at the Christie, who's going to talk about uh, non EGFR driven tumours and a few bits and bobs elsewhere. And then uh, Riaz Shah, who's medical oncologist at the Kent Oncology Centre, is going to update us on all that's happening in meso and neoadjuvant sac. And boy, there's a lot going on. We're going to actually take five minutes of questions after each presentation. So please do keep your questions coming in throughout the presentation so we can take your questions at the end of each individual's talk. So without further uh, ado, let's crack on with our first presenter, Tom Newson-Davis. Tom is going to speak to us about the update at ASCO and AACR about everything EGFR mutant. So remember, do go to Slido on your panel and give your uh, make sure you put type in your questions, which we can then take at the end of the presentation. So Tom, Tom, are you there? Over to you to give us your update on uh, EGFR mutant disease. Reveal yourself and take it away. Uh, thank you, Sanjay. I would reveal myself, but my uh, computer says I can't start my video because the host has stopped it. So if the host could unstop it, that would be super. Great. There we go. There we go. Well done. All right. Thank over you to you, much. Tom. Thank you, Sanjay. And thank you very much for asking me to be part of this. I'm going for the informal shirt only look because in my hospital, it's about 120 degrees. So I look a bit hot and flustered. That's the reason. Um, actually, everything I'm going to talk to you about is from ASCO. There weren't actually any particular ones from AACR about EGFR mutated lung cancer, but we've got more than enough to be getting on with. Here are my uh, disclosures. So I'm going to tell you roughly three aspects of EGFR from ASCO, which is going to impact today and probably next year on your treatments. 
Number one is adjuvant osimertinib. Now you're probably using this already, and if you're not, probably should be. Um, and we now have overall survival data, the holy grail. This made the Guardian on newspaper, what could be a higher accolade than that? Number two, what do you do after osimertinib? Still a very difficult area. And I've got some data on chemoimmunotherapy, what to do with metamplifications and these rare additional mutations. And we might have something up our sleeve for that. And then finally, I'm gonna to talk to you about the rare mutations. In fact, exon 20 insertion mutations, which we're picking up more and more now that I hope we're not using PCR for our molecular analysis. Instead, we're using NGS. So we're gonna kick off with adjuvant treatment. So Adora 2 was in the plenary session, the absolute high point, the Manchester city of, the, uh, of ASCO. And what was presented here was the overall survival data. In case you've been under a rock for the past few years, Adora is a big phase three study which took patients with resectable lung cancer, was removed at surgery. They got chemotherapy if that was felt to be appropriate by the treating physician. Then they were randomized, you can see in the blue and the yellow box, to osimertinib adjuvantly for three years or placebo. Um, now, actually, you see in my arrow on the top right-hand side, it says this was unblinded early due to IDMC recommendation. In other words, the IDMC, the Independent Data Monitoring Committee, saw that the uh, data was very strongly positive and therefore unblinded it early. And that's important when we look at the outcomes. The other thing I'd like to point out with my bottom arrow there is the primary endpoint was disease-free survival. Overall survival, which I'm going to show you, was a key secondary endpoint, but we should remember that disease-free survival was the primary endpoint. So you may be thinking, hang on, Tom, I've heard about this data already. And you're absolutely right, you have. We've seen the disease-free survival data dripped out over a couple of years, originally in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020, and then we had some updates last year. And you can see on the left-hand graph there, you have the original uh, disease-free survival data, with very big separation of the curves and this hazard ratio, the bottom left-hand side there of 0.2, which is incredibly high. Um, on the right, we saw an update which came out uh, in ESMO in the autumn of last year, showing, as you can see, more maturity of the data and those curves apart, but maybe drifting together. Now, I want you to look at 36 months along that graph and you can see at 36 months, these curves are beginning to come together. And we should remind ourselves that osimertinib was given for 36 months. And so the question people have asked is, was osimertinib actually curing anyone or just delaying relapse? So the overall survival data was really important. This is the data. So overall survival, as you can see on the right-hand side, the hazard ratio is 0.49, which is extremely impressive, uh, more than 50% reduction, with a highly significant uh, p-value as you can see. And you wanna look at the, the landmarks, I find that quite useful. Look at 60 months, which of course is five years. You can see it's just over a 10% improvement in overall survival, a 12% in this uh, patient group, which was the uh, intention to treat population. So you may look at those and go, well, that's not a huge difference in terms of overall survival looking at the graphs, but actually, if you look at the hazard ratio, that is fairly impressive. So, what do we know about subgroups? Well, we'll run our eyes down here. We might see that in terms of gender, men do a little bit less well than women. 
age and smoking history don't seem to make much difference. But I'd like to draw attention to the two bits with the red triangle. And you can see that Asian patients do less well than non-Asian patients. And patients with an L858R mutation do less well than patients with an exon 19 deletion. And we've seen this trend before. We've seen this trend with ozimertinib when it's used in the first line setting, in the metastatic setting, for example. So that's just something for us to keep an eye on. I'll also ask you to look at the bottom line where it says adjuvant chemotherapy. And you can see that whether you've got adjuvant chemo or not didn't seem to make a huge amount of difference. So this is a contentious study. And it's a contentious study. And lots of people in Twitter are getting very exercised about this because there's one aspect of the study which is really important to focus on. And that is what happened to people after their cancer came back. So the area in the red box is probably the most important bit. So what I'd like you to look at is in that red box, you can see on the top line of it, it said patients who received subsequent anti-cancer therapy. Now, of course, the patients with the osimertinib, fewer of them got anti-cancer therapy. We'd expect that because it's working. But if you look at the placebo, it's 54%. And I'd like you to then run down your eye to where it says osimertinib. And it says 43. So what that means is in the placebo arm, these were patients who had surgery, the male may not have had chemo, and then their cancer came back and they needed another TKI, or they needed a TKI, only 43% got osimertinib. So the criticism of this study is that not enough people had access to osimertinib when their cancer came back. And if you didn't have access to the drug, maybe it isn't a fair trial, because actually what they really should have got when their cancer came back, they all should have got osimertinib. Now, why didn't they? Well, it's because the drug wasn't available in those countries at that time. So lots and lots of chat, lots of people getting angry. Um, what's my thoughts on Adora? Well, my first thought is it's positive for overall survival. My second thought is, yes, I think there is some compromise with only 43% of patients getting osimertinib in the control arm, but I don't think it invalidates that big hazard ratio of 0.49. There's a more philosophical point, which is, are they cured or have we just delayed relapse? We know at five years, 12% more patients are alive than uh, who took osimertinib than weren't. And we use that number, that five-year survival, we happily use that with adjuvant cispatin for years and years and years. But I think there is a philosophical question as to whether we have cured them or we're just delaying relapse. And there is uh, a fact I've noticed in my adjuvant patients, which is three years of osimertinib is challenging. The discontinuation rates are quite high. They're higher than you get in the metastatic setting. And we do have some unanswered questions. We don't know the optimal duration of osimertinib. Is it three years? Is it five years? Is it forever? We don't know that. We don't really know who needs chemo. Remember, chemo was optional here. And we don't know for the other mutations, the non-exon 19 and L858R ones, we don't know whether osimertinib has a role in those. And I think those unanswered questions will be the subject of ongoing discussions for a long time. So that's adjuvant. What about people who have metastatic disease? You've used your osimertinib as the first treatment. What are you going to use next? Well, we know that resistance to osimertinib is quite disparate. There's not just one process going on you can jump onto, give them another TKI. And this is a slide that's been doing the rounds for a while. And look at the bottom left-hand arrow. It's from ESMO in 2018. So five years ago, we were talking about this. And the truth is, we haven't made much progress in coming up with a defined answer. 
On the top are a number of processes of the cell surface, which drive resistance to osimertinib. On the left, you can see you have secondary mutations of the EGFR mutation, for example, C797X. You can have HER2 amplifications running your eye along there. And on the right, you can have MET amplifications as well. And there's some other processes within the cell under the line. You also see BRAF mutations, KRAS mutations, PIK3CA mutations. There's a whole range of those. And if you look at the various percentages, there's no one real dominant process. So we've had to look at a number of different processes to try to work out what to tackle. In truth, the thing we really do, most likely in clinic, behind my, behind my door here every week, is to give chemotherapy. And we tend to give pemetrexid and platinum-based chemo, don't we? That's what we do. And the question we've been asking is, what happens if you add immunotherapy to that? I suspect most of you listening will be giving PEM-PEM-Platinum as your first-line treatment for non-EGFR-mutated uh, lung cancers, non-mutation-driven lung cancers, but we don't tend to use that in people after osimertinib. What happens if you try? So Keynote 789 was looking exactly that. They'd all had TKIs, either first-line Aussie or first-line first or second, second generation, and then osimertinib afterwards if it was appropriate. And then they were randomized at that stage to PEM-Platinum, or PEM-platinum with pembrolizumab, and that went up for a maximum of two years. And yes, you could cross, it, cross over to pembrolizumab if you needed. Your primary endpoint was progression-free survival and overall survival. I don't tend to mention stats very much when we come to uh, presentations that don't understand them, but I would like you to look on the right-hand side here where the red arrow is saying that for this study, statistical significance was below 0.117. Okay, not 0.5, but 0.117. What we found was no significant improvement in progression-free survival. Yes, the hazard ratio top right-hand side is 0.8, and yes, that's a low p-value, but it's above 0.117, so non-significant improvement in progression-free survival, and a non-significant improvement in overall survival as well. So there is no justification in my book to be adding pembrolizumab to PEM-CARBO in your relapsed osimertinib patients. The next thing we've looked at is MET overexpression. I mentioned to you that METO amplification is, sorry, not overexpression, amplification is um, one of the key drivers uh, that we see. And this is a study looking at adding topotinib to osimertinib. Now you may say, I know topotinib, and you're absolutely right. You do know topotinib. That's a drug which is currently available for MET exon 14 skipping mutations. But here it's being added to osimertinib uh, in a situation where you know there's MET amplification, either diagnosed through tissue biopsy or through liquid biopsy. And this is from the tissue biopsy. Look on the right-hand side, that's the waterfall plot showing there's activity. And if you look at the graph on the, uh, sorry, the table on the left, you'll see the second row down, it says overall response rate of 43%, which I think is a very respectable overall response rate. The duration of response, the line below, is just under 10 months, and with a medium progression-free survival, probably slightly disappointing, at just over five months. And we don't know yet what the median overall survival is. So I think this has activity, and whether it's a tissue biopsy or, next slide, liquid biopsy, we're seeing very similar activity. And that's helpful, because we know that you're getting tissue biopsy when a patient relapses on a TKI, not always straightforward. It can be very low volume disease and yet you can diagnose this at liquid biopsy, and there is activity. 
quite well tolerated. What we're seeing is a classic side effects we'd expect with osimertinib and with some additional ones, such as peripheral edema that we're noticing with tipotinib, but a tolerated process and concerns about pneumonitis, not particularly founded, seems to have quite a low rate of pneumonitis. So I think this is an interesting development. And finally, we learned about these rare mutations and new EGFR mutations. Uh, this was a phase one study which came out of uh, our colleagues, uh, and in particular Anna Mintram, who was a friend of BTOG and uh, a general supporter of all our work, um, looking at Blue 945, new drug, um, and also Blue 945 combined with osimertinib. Well, why was it combined with osimertinib? Because by itself, it was quite disappointing. These are patients who have had uh, and exhausted their uh, osimertinib options. And there is a bit of a response rate there, but you can see on the red triangle, unfortunately, that duration of benefit is, is pretty limited. So probably we're more excited about this, which is combining blue 945 with osimertinib. We're getting a more interesting response rate there. And if you look at your, you cast your eyes at the bottom where all the X's are, you can see the very bottom row of that. Patients with a C797S, they're responding largely very well uh, to this combination. So I think this is something to be keeping an eye on as being able to target new mutations coming through and maybe adding in blue 945. Not without its problems, not without its side effects, a little bit of a hepatotoxicity, um, but actually largely well tolerated. And I think is going to be a realistic prospect in terms of a combination we can use with a safety signal that's acceptable. So what's my take on post-osimertinib? It's a really challenging space, isn't it? There hasn't been one answer to everything. I don't think there's a role for adding pembrolizumab to pemplatinum. I'd be interested to know whether antioangiogenic drugs add anything. You might remember the Impower 150 study, uh, which showed some evidence of benefit, although the overall survival benefit got washed out after five years. But keep your eye on a study called Orient 31. We're looking for the overall survival of that, which may come out in the near future. I think topotinib and osimertinib for your met amplification are interesting. I think they're active. Um, both drugs are, are licensed in, in lung cancer, although not quite topotinib in this setting. But it's challenges is to define what MET amplification is. Uh, Blue 945, disappointing alone, but better with osimertinib, um, and that's one to watch. And the last thing I'm going to tell you about is exon 20 insertion mutations. Important to look for these. PCR-based assays miss them, so make sure you're using an NGS-based assay. And we have two drugs available for EG EGFR exon 20 insertions. Mobocertinib on the left, available NHS, Amibantam on the right, not available NHS at the moment. Run your eyes along the overall survival. You'll see that it's very similar, perhaps a little bit higher with amivantanab. Run your eye along the progression-free survival, very similar, and overall survival, very similar. But actually, I think probably slightly disappointing, if we're being honest, compared to what we see in the classic common mutations. So there's a lot of interest in new drugs that might cause this, might uh, treat this. The other issue with mobocertinib is it causes diarrhea, quite significant diarrhea. And one of the issues with amibantamab is infusion-related reactions, which can be quite problematic. And those initial first infusions are quite heavy on uh, chemotherapy day unit time and can be quite intimidating for patients and chemotherapy nurses alike. So we've got a new drug called somvanertinib, uh, which there's a phase two study of, uh, looking at patients as a first-line setting, um, uh, sorry, uh, uh, second to third line setting of this agent. Um, so it's seeing um, activity, 
and looking including uh, intracranial disease activity as well. And what we can see here is very good response. This is a waterfall plot, so all the lines below the line are response. And it's been divided according to uh, the particular type of uh, EGFR, exon 20 insertion mutation they have. And you can see the bottom, uh, so the second line from the top, we can see the presence of baseline brain metastases picked out with the uh, blue boxes. And you can see there's activity both in patient with brain mets and without, which is of course very encouraging. The average duration of treatment is about seven months, and the longest duration is just over 18 months. And so I think this is a drug with activity. Uh, side effects seem to be manageable with uh, increased uh, serum phosphokinase, graphene phosphokinase, sorry, as probably the commonest, along with diarrhea. But a manageable profile and less of the severe uh, GI toxicities that we see with some other drugs in this area, although not without its side effects. So my thoughts on this, uh, as my penultimate slide, is room for improvement with current agents, definitely. Um, that I think sombazertinib is active. There's intracranial activity of just under 50%. There's an ongoing phase three study of first line sonvo plus chemotherapy. I'd be interested to see that. And I see this as a challenger to the status quo that is currently MOBO or amivantamab. Um, Look at a uh, study by, again, I mentioned on uh, subcutaneous amivantamab. Um, looks like it has uh, the same activity as amivantamab, but without those problematic intravenous side effects. And I'd be interested to see if that might be on its way as well. That's also at ASCO, and that was a Paloma study. So there you go. Those are my three. Adjuvant ozimertinib, overall survival I've shown you, post-first-line ozimertinib, chemoimmunotherapy, uh, MET and C797S, among some other mutations, and the rare mutation, Sunvo, coming along with the Exxon 20 insertions. And that's me. Thank you very much. Tom, thanks very much for that superb uh, and very clear uh, update. So folk online, if you've got any questions, do type them into to Slido and uh, we can take them for Tom. Um, but I'm going to kick off with with Tom. So uh, Adora, clearly, I mean, a massive impact with disease-free survival. Everybody, you know, has pretty much wanted to use it as standard of care. And I think many people are using it as standard of care. And to me, I think the overall survival just reinforces that. And it's wonderful to see overall survival. But the key question is, what about adjuvant chemotherapy? So what are your thoughts with this? Should EGFR mutant patients, if eligible for adjuvant chemo, get adjuvant chemo? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting question. There's quite a variation in the study according to who gave it and who didn't. Um, you'll see that the um, hazard ratios for overall survival didn't differ according to that. So we're not getting a strong signal that you shouldn't be giving um, adjuvant chemotherapy. My take and my personal approach is that if someone is uh, suitable for adjuvant chemotherapy based on our standard criteria, tumor more than four centimeters, node positive, they are good performance status. Uh, I personally prefer people who, uh, to receive adjuvant chemotherapy who are younger. I find it more difficult. And I think there's much less evidence in patients over the age of 70. But if they're good performance status, younger group, and they form that group, I would still give adjuvant uh, chemotherapy. I do not see osimertinib as a replacement for that. And that remains the case. Of course, if someone says they don't want it, then that's fine. But it's still, to me, uh, the first bit of what you do, and then your osimertinib comes in afterwards. 
So I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I, I the the study wasn't designed really to investigate the role of of chemo. So you know, my my view on it is chemo is still standard where indicated, and the question is really whether you add in uh, osimertinib on top. And I think that makes biological sense, right? Because these are heterogeneous tumors, and you know, many tumors are driven by the branch mutations that occur on on heterogeneity. And you're quite right; it's it's not as easy in the adjuvant setting, isn't it? Uh, the the dose response, the dose reduction rate was almost double in Adora as as we've seen with Flora. And then in the stage three setting, uh, I mean, you didn't mention this, but we've got the LoRa data coming out at some point in the next, you know, 12 months or so, which is looking at osimertinib consolidating radical stage three uh, uh, non-small cell lung cancer. So we, we very much look forward to that. And then you talked about um, the ongoing synergy with tepotinib and osimertinib with MET amplification. So my understanding is that we do have access to tepotinib uh, in the UK for patients um, who progress on osimertinib with MET amplification uh, via the company on the na name patient. Uh, you know, is it possible to do look for MET amplification in the NHS at the moment? Uh, Tom, what's your experience? And uh, uh, the uh, Genomic Medicine Service view on that? Uh, yeah, we, we go on Genomic Service from a place called the Royal Martin Hospital. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a bit, it's a bit of a shoestring effort, but you know they, they do a decent <laughs> job sometimes. Um, yes, it is. And, and, I, and I think knowing that availability of the drug on a name patient basis is, is really important. I've always thought this Tepotinib Aussie data has been a little bit undersold. It came out in ESMO last year. They, they didn't have they only had response uh, rate data, didn't have survival data. Um, but you know, there are two drugs which are literally in your pharmacy. Um, I think that's an acceptable response rate. I, I would love it to be a bit higher, but it, it's very acceptable. If you do respond, you respond quite well. Yes, it is available. You can um, uh, see met amplification. What I would do if you're not sure how to look for it or where it is, or if it's not coming to you in the right way, I would recommend speaking to your molecular pathologist because I bet they know the data and I bet they can tell you exactly what you're looking for. Um, and if it's not immediately apparent on your report, uh, then uh, ask for it. Um, I think it's a reason to look for biopsy. I think it's a reason for us to re-biopsy our patients because I think if you can put them onto this, it's about 15% allegedly met amplification rates um, and you can push off chemo a little bit longer. I think that's a great thing. I agree. You know, uh, dual targeted oral therapy. I mean, what's what's there not to like, right? So, um, you know, I think I think that really is a great option for our patients. You've got to look for it. And if you don't look, you don't find. I mean, you've got to have biopsial disease, which is the, the challenge, right? So one question that's come in is being very cynical about the control arm of Adura, right? So is the fact that we've got an overall survival advantage here just because we had an inferior performing control arm, one where not everybody got, got osimertinib? My personal view on this is actually that's the real world, right? People don't get what they're allocated to get because stuff happens. People have brain metastases deteriorate, people have pulmonary emboli deteriorate. So it is an intention to treat analysis. And if we're waiting for global world change, we're going to be waiting for years to implement therapy and trials to read out. But Tom, let's take your view on it. Do you think this is a cynical ploy by the sponsor? Or, um, <laughs> you know, do, do you, you know, is this valid, uh, uh, valid outcome? Um, I don't think it's a cynical ploy by the sponsor. No, um, I think that, uh, there is an issue with access to osimertinib. It's a very expensive drug and countries that can't afford it can't afford it. And I think we should always drive for equity of access to drugs throughout the world. 
The study was started a while ago, and not every country then by any means had first-line osimertinib, and not every country still has first-line osimertinib, I'm afraid to say. Um, I think in the ideal world, you would absolutely have a situation where everyone could have had access to it. I think it does have an impact on the results. I think when you look at that overall survival hazard ratio, I think you've got to interpret that with the knowledge that only 43% of people got osimertinib in the placebo one when they, when they, when they relapsed. As you say, it's never going to be 100%. Life isn't like that. Um, but I, I think it does uh, make us reflect that overall survival benefit. But I still think it's a very big overall survival benefit. And if you compare that to what we have been based on, and based chemo on for a very, very long time, um, I, I, I think that still remains a very strong overall survival benefit. To me, sometimes the question is, what would you have if a relative will stay? If a relative phoned up and said, look, I'm you know, in this situation, should I have IGF and Ozymertinib? I would say, yeah. Yeah, there are some caveats on the overall survival. I don't know if the true value is exactly 0.49, but I do believe there's an overall survival benefit there at five years. Yeah, <clears throat> totally agree with with much of your interpretation there. And just um, just to flag that in the UK, we will be running the target study, which is um, looking at two cohorts of adjuvant patients, one, uh, well, uh, a cohort with common mutations, looking at five years worth of therapy, and also looking at the uncommon mutations, which are likely to be osimertinib sensitive. So hopefully we'll be able to answer some of those questions. Uh, in due course. Now, Tom, one final question's come in, which is about metamplification. So you've got your osimertinib uh, patient frontline and they've PD'd and you're looking for metamplification, but you're lucky enough to access ctDNA and the ctDNA comes back without metamplification. Do you still give tepotinib or do you need to biopsy or do you go straight to chemo? What, what, how do you manage that? With ctDNA comes back, no matter. Yeah, I, I suspect you will find on an patient basis that to have access to that drug, you would need to show amplification. And I think if you're not able to show that on your on the platform you're using, I think uh, my personal approach would be to find tissue confirmation of that. Um, I did find in the ASCO presentations the details of the liquid biopsy and the threshold I found quite difficult to see. I couldn't see very much on that. So yeah. I don't think out in that, but I think I'd want a piece of paper saying, yes, there's clear metamplification, so I feel justified wheeling my topotin about. I think that's absolutely correct, right? You need to know whether it's on-target or off-target resistance, and if it's off-target resistance, what is the mechanism? And, you know, with ctDNA, the, the technology is not really well, well validated for copy number gain or true amplification identification. So, yes, if you find it, brilliant, but if you don't find it, we really do need tissue. Anyway, Tom, we could go on about this for hours. Thank you very like much it. and fantastic uh, work. Thank you for putting this all together at very, very short notice and hot off the press. Everybody came back from uh, ASCO on Wednesday and you're already in front of everybody's screen so far. So now over to Yvonne. Yvonne, you're going to speak to us about the non-EGFR uh, non drivers and a bit, bit of odds and sods from everywhere else. So Yvonne, take it away. Thanks, Sanjay. So uh, I'm hoping you can hear me. There's a lot of thunder and lightning behind me here in Manchester. So hopefully we'll all go according to plan. So I've got a bit of a smorgasbord of um, some of the other data that was presented at ASCO. So you've heard the really big data from Tom on EGFR. We're going to be, I'm going to be sandwiched in between Tom and Riaz talking about uh, neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy, but there was some really other interesting data. So I'm going to touch for a start on non-EGF molecularly driven cancer and some of the data, particularly in brain metastasis there. Um, then go on to look at an example of 
um, ADCs and non-small cell lung cancer. We're going to then change tack completely and think about a radiotherapy study in limited stage small cell. And then I'm going to leave you with quirky corner and a bit of a curiosity that was presented uh, in one of the last sessions. So starting with um, molecularly driven lung, lung cancer, we know brain metastases are such a big problem. And for patients with KRAS G12C, brain metastases are also a problem, about 10 to 20% of them at diagnosis. And the incidence of those brain metastases, of course, increases over time. And it's such a big problem because of course, it impacts on our quality of life for patients and of course, overall survival. So we importantly had data from CodeBreak 200. So this was the randomized trial in patients with KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer who'd been previously treated with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And patients in this study were randomized to either receive docetaxel or citorazib. And the presentation at ASCO focused on those um, with brain metastases and the efficacy in those groups. So you can see that on the left-hand side, 40 of the 171, 171 patients receiving satorazib had brain metastases. And, and similarly on the docetaxel, 29 of the 174 patients had brain metastases. And of those that were measurable, of course, there were slightly lower uh, numbers. And so when we come to look at the efficacy on the top left-hand corner, you can see that in terms of progression in the CNS, patients receiving satorazib had an 11.6 month CNS progression compared to six months only in those receiving docetaxel with a significant hazard ratio. So confirming that satorazib does indeed get into the brain. And in terms of those that had measurable disease, you can see the objective response was confirmed in about a third of patients receiving satorazib in the brain compared to only 15% of those receiving docetaxel. And there was concordance between the CNS response and the extracranial response. So really reassuring data for a clinical practice that satorazib does have activity in the brain, but I would, I would just advise, remember this was post hoc analysis, and this was in patients who had uh, stable treated brain metastases. And so it would be helpful for us to see the activity of perhaps in future studies of satorazib in patients with untreated brain metastases. So sticking with the brain met theme, what about other molecularly driven cohorts. So this was data from Trident 1, which is the phase 1-2 study of repetrectomid in ROS1 infusion non-small cell lung cancer. And in this study, you can see that the patients were a mix of either those that had been previously treated with a ROS1 TKI or those that were uh, ROS1 TKI naive. And of the naive uh, patients, about a quarter of them had brain metastasis at baseline compared to about 43% of those that had had a previous TKI um, prior to entering into the study. And you can see on that table on the right-hand side that the overall response rate was an impressive 89% of patients who were ROS1 TKI naive and about 33% in those who were pre-treated. And if we look into that data in a little more detail, you can see from this waterfall plot that the patients that you can see with a response who are in green or in that aqua blue color were patients who had had one or more TKI on previous treatment. So you can see that patients with objective responses in the brain, even despite significant TKI exposure in the past. 
So what do we know about the, the side effect profile of this drug? Well, there is an amount of dizziness with it. We haven't got a lot of data on the CNS toxicity. And of course, I would have questions knowing that, that drugs, TKIs, that get into the brain often do have CNS toxicity, thinking of lolatinib in particular. And so I'd be really interested when you see further publications on this to see exactly what the incidence of significant CNS toxicity is. There were about a third of patients who had dose reductions, but only seven to 10% of patients discontinued drug, suggesting that actually it is, it is manageable and tolerable. And how does that repetrectinib sit within the other TKIs we have in the ROS1 arena? Well, if you look at that table on the bottom right-hand side, you can see that that 80% intracranial response is really quite substantial obviously higher than that that we see with lolatinib, seritinib, and crizotinib, but similar to some of the other newer agents that are in development. So I think watch this space, very interesting, and certainly showing some improved efficacy in the brain. So going back to KRAS for a moment, um, this was a study, Scarlet, which was a single arm phase two, uh, which might be of relatively small interest, looking at the combination of chemotherapy plus satorizib in patients with KRAS-G12C. Um, fairly standard criteria in that patients had to be fit, um, and they were uh, then treated with satorizib plus carboplatin pemetrexid, and then went on to maintenance satorizib and pemetrexid. And in terms of the previous treatment, you can see at that table on the bottom right-hand side that two of the 30 patients had had previous checkpoint inhibitors, but the vast majority of those patients had not. And when we come to look at the efficacy, there's an impressive overall response rate with combination chemotherapy and satorizib of nearly 90%, uh, with the median overall survival not reached, the data wasn't mature. And if we look at the toxicity on that bottom left-hand table, the toxicity, mainly myelotoxicity being driven by the chemotherapy, but of note, there is some elevation of the transaminases. So I guess in terms of where this sits, um, we've obviously had some problems with combining KRAS inhibitors with chemoimmunotherapy. So this is perhaps giving us more information on patients with KRAS G12C who may not be suitable for immunotherapy. Uh, and with those fairly impressive response rates of 90% in that, in that patient group, I think it's not going to be something that, that changes the treatment for a lot of our patients, but there may be a role for those that don't have the ability to receive a checkpoint inhibitor with KRAS G12C. So moving on from the molecularly driven cancers to um, standard non-molecularly driven non-small cell lung cancer, there are a number of antibody drug conjugates in development, and there are many studies ongoing. So I thought it would be interesting just to give you a little bit of a snapshot of tropian lung 2, which is looking at the combination of data DXD plus pembrolizumab with or without chemotherapy. So this is a phase one study looking at data DXD. And you can see from the, um, the, the cartoon that there's the antibody that is linked to a TOPO1 inhibitor. And the cohorts that we're going to be looking at are combining platinum chemotherapy with PEMBRO and data DXD, or just the data DXD and PEMBRO, what's regarded as doublet therapy. 
And in terms of the patient characteristics, the one thing that I want to point out here is the majority of patients are treated in the first line. So 58% of those receiving doublet were in the first line, 75% of those receiving triplet were in the first line, with smaller proportions that had been uh, received immunotherapy previously. And when we come on to look at the efficacy, the top left-hand corner is all comers in the study, so including first and second line. The, and you can see from the first line um, waterfall plot that most of that effect is being driven by the first line patients because they were much greater in number. And But if you look at the, the spider plot on the bottom left hand side, it's, it's clear from some of those lines in blue that patients with lower PDL1 also seem to be getting some durable benefit from the doublet therapy, so without chemotherapy. So I think it's an interesting area. However, I would say that um, we have relatively immature data as yet, and I think um, the jury is really still out on the ADCs. In this study, we saw a 20% um, ILD rate of all grades, and I guess there are some questions about how that is going to combine with other treatments. There was also um, some grade 3 ocular toxicity that we need to watch out for. So there's several studies ongoing, many of you may be involved in those. There's no particular biomarker strategy to see where these ADCs are going to fit in in the frontline setting. And we really don't know anything about what the addition of the drugs is doing to patients' quality of life. So I think this is going to be an area where we uh, need to see more data. So moving on from there and moving on modalities, I uh, hesitate somewhat to present a radiotherapy study as a neomedical oncologist. However, I think this is a really important study. It was phase two, the Norwegian study that we've seen previously, but presented at ASCO with the final overall survival. So you can see the study schema on the top there. So concurrent chemoradiotherapy with chemotherapy coming in at the second cycle and the study comparing standard dose BD radiotherapy, 45 grain, 30 fractions to higher dose 60 grain, 40 fractions. And you can see the survival curves at the bottom and most importantly, that overall survival curve. And you can see an almost doubling of the median overall survival from 22.6 months up to 43.6 months. So that's very impressive data to me for a study that um, provides a treatment that's somewhat cheaper than most of our medical oncology therapies. However, um, it was a phase two study and we need to look very carefully at the, at the supporting data. Interestingly, the toxicity was really very similar with the grade three toxicity rate not significantly different in terms of esophagitis and pneumonitis. We didn't see any data on the technical aspects of the radiotherapy in the presentation. And I know that my, uh, my radiotherapy colleagues would, would question um, uh, some aspects of the radiotherapy because we're not seeing any difference in the, in the toxicity. And of course, when we've dose escalated in other settings, there has been greater toxicity associated with that. Of course, in terms of clinical practice, not all centers are currently delivering BD radiotherapy for small cell lung cancer, and there would be an impact of this. So the questions are really around is a phase three study needed uh, to confirm that very impressive improvement in overall survival that we're seeing. So again, sticking with practical issues in real life, the Japanese presented a very large retrospective study looking at elderly patients in systemic therapy. So elderly, they regarded as patients of 75 years and older, and the systemic therapy was either single agent chemotherapy, double chemotherapy, um, immunotherapy on its own or combined with chemotherapy. 
And you can see that there was an impressive age range from 75 to 95. And in terms of the regimens, you can see on the bottom uh, uh, line of that table, 28% of patients receiving checkpoint inhibitor on its own, 34% chemo IO, and then 25 and 12 with, single, with double and single agent chemotherapy. And when we come to look on the right-hand side, you can see that the black and the red line, so that's the chemo IO and the immunotherapy arms alone, clearly have much better outcomes, both in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival compared to chemotherapy on its own. So there are really some very important data demonstrating in a very big study of over 1,200 patients that it's, it's feasible for us to deliver standard treatments to our patients. And just because they're elderly, you shouldn't be shying away from doing that. And then particularly when we look at the patients who had high PDL one it was helpful to see that the outcomes were no better uh, for combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy compared to immunotherapy alone. So giving us some, some reassurance and guidance in a real life setting that it's entirely reasonable to treat these patients who are over the age of 75 with single agent immunotherapy in that setting, as well as having other options if they have lower levels of PDL1. Importantly, in terms of toxicity, although there were some slight numerical increases in toxicity, for those receiving uh, checkpoint inhibitor with chemotherapy, I draw your eyes to the bottom of this table, which shows that the discontinuation rates were actually pretty similar. So about a quarter of the patients in either the checkpoint inhibitor or the combination of, of chemo, IO, uh, stopping treatment due to adverse events, and a death rate, again, very similar, about 2%. So in summary, treatment of elderly patients is feasible. There is some slightly increased in toxicity, but discontinuation death rates similar. And so the overall survival benefits that we see with chemotherapy and immunotherapy are deliverable in this older patient age group. So the final curiosity that I will leave you with is tumor treating fields in non-small cell lung cancer. Now, prior to ASCO, I had absolutely no idea what a tumor treating field is, but essentially, they are um, pads that are put on the patient's chest with, uh, that then generate an electrical field between those pads uh, that impacts on um, outcome according to a proposed mechanism of action, which affects cell migration, cell membrane permeability, and the other items that you can see there. And it's important to just uh, let you know that tumor treating fields, this technology is available in the states because the FDA has approved it already in mesothelioma and in glioblastoma. So the study concerned Lunar was designed some time ago, so in 2016, took a while to recruit. Um, and at that time, of course, the standard of care was different. So it was for patients that had been previously treated with platinum-based chemotherapy, and they were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to receive the investigator's standard choice of treatment, and that was either a checkpoint inhibitor or docetaxel, with the tumor treating fields or not. And of course, some of the criticisms of this is that this is not standard of care anymore. However, when we come to look at the outcomes, you can see that there was the, the study met its primary endpoint, and that was being driven by the outcomes in the patients receiving uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So you can see on the left-hand side, for patients having uh, treatment with checkpoint inhibitor and having the tumor treating fields on their chest wall, that the median overall survival was 10.8 months for patients receiving immunotherapy alone 
and increased up to 18.5 months for those with the device in place. And the, the, the improvement was not seen in those patients who received docetaxel. So regardless of how unusual this treatment might be, it's clear that there's been demonstrated an eight-month improvement in overall survival. And I think it's fair to say that further study is warranted in these patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors, perhaps in another line. So my take-home thoughts, just very briefly, you can see there, I won't go through these one by one because I think we probably want some time for questions. Yvonne, thank you very much for that superb summary of, um, you know, some interesting, interesting bits. Um, so a couple of things that really been uh, buzzing from ASCO and AACR are about the KRAS field. And, you know, we've got, you know, Sotaracib uh, already approved, hot on its heels is Adagrasib. We're, we're waiting for licensing and the um, uh, UK approvals to come through for that. And there's a whole bunch of other ways of drugging the KRAS MEP kinase axis uh, coming through. Uh, I was very interested to see that combination data of uh, chemo with Sotaracib. I mean, do you think this is really likely to be a way forward? We just can't combine Sotaracib with checkpoint inhibitors. We've seen that from Codebreak 101. You know, the liver tox is, is just not doable. So is this useful, for example, for your PDL one negative uh, patients or your um, KRAS keep one mutant, SDK11 mutant patients, if you know what that is in your genotyping uh, arena, where we think that, you know, IO is not really going to offer much, or is this just a niche area for people with bad autoimmunity? So I think that's a really good question. We, we, we don't know the answer to that, but what is clear is that for patients with KRAS-G12C, um, by and large, we are treating those with standard of care, which would be chemotherapy, immunotherapy upfront. And of course, the toxicity concern is real. So for me, I don't think this is going to have a role in um, standard treatment, except perhaps in those patients who cannot have um, a checkpoint inhibitor at the moment. And I think we don't really know enough about those co-mutations at the moment to say that this would be any better. Um, so I think it's, it's a potential route for therapy for those patients. I think how we get regulatory approval in the UK for a combination such as this is, is another challenge for us in that particular setting. But I guess, I guess that, would, that would be an option that I would like to have at some point in the future, but it's probably going to take a very long time. Indeed, I guess we just wait for a trial. I, you know, I think there may well be a trial with this combination in the frontline setting. You know, I, for one, was very impressed with the high response rate, but actually the PFS I was a bit underwhelmed uh, by. So, I, you know, I think we just need to see how this uh, this pans out in some more detail. Um, just moving swiftly forward to your uh, small cell study. I mean, that's a massive hazard ratio for overall survival. I know it's only a phase two and numbers are relatively small, but if you think about it, right, we've got IO coming through in the limited stage disease. This is a tall hurdle to cross, right, if we can achieve so much with, with radiation. Tell me, what's the buzz at the Christie about that data? Or is there no buzz at all about that data? So I, I was very excited about it because those improvements are so, so, so big. Um, and however, and of course, it, it, on, the, on the surface of it, it seems to be a relatively easy to deliver win for us. But I have to say, my colleagues at the Christie are less enthusiastic about it. They are very concerned about the fact that we 
don't have enough, it's a phase, it's a randomized phase two. Um, the, the numbers of patients are not huge and we really don't have the manuscript that was presented from the Lancet earlier on this year. We really don't have a lot of data on and technical aspects of radiotherapy. So their feeling is, is absolutely that we need, we would need to have a randomized phase three um, for that to change practice. And of course, the other slight fly in the ointment is that not all centers carry out BD radiotherapy. And certainly in the States, there's very little BD radiotherapy. Um, so I think in terms of where that sits in our um, likely to change clinical practice, I think that's much more uncertain. And I think it's probably going to need a further study for it to change uh, care pathways in the UK. Well, one of the things I think we do really well in the UK and actually most of Europe is the delivery of BID radiotherapy for small cell and uh, for various reasons, the US doesn't do that uh, very well. So we await the uh, uh, phase three data. And the other big buzz is in the field of ADCs, right? So we're all waiting for the data DXD versus docetaxel randomized phase three fully accrued. We're hoping to get some data on that perhaps this year, maybe next year. Let's see what the uh, meetings uh, pan out like. What do you think about combining ADCs with chemo and IO. I mean, to me, I was a bit twitchy about some of the talks that we're starting to see. I agree, Sanjay. I'm a bit twitchy about some of the talks as well. And I'm um, it's early days, but I'm I'm not so convinced about the benefits so far. So I'm very, very much on the fence about the ADCs. There's a lot of them out there. There's lots of studies that are presenting. There are some there's some interesting data, but I think we are just going to see how the studies, we're going to need to see how the studies mature. Great. Well, look, thank you for that overview. We had one question that came in about the sotaracib uh, cost uh, and does the efficacy justify the cost? And I think the answer is nice. I think it does. So I think, you know, it's cost effective. So, uh, so there you are. Okay, Yvonne, thanks very much uh, for that great presentation. And now uh, for our final speaker, uh, Riaz Shah, you have the joy of speaking to us about the exciting area of mesothelioma and everything perioperative, where there's lots and lots of data going on. So Riaz, over to you. And folk online, please do keep your questions coming in and uh, uh, I'll try and pose these to the panel uh, if you do put them into Slido. So Riaz, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Uh, fantastic talk so far. So uh, I've got a tough, tough gig here. Um, so uh, yeah, my disclosures. Um, designed for UK practice this talk. Um, now I'm going to talk about mesothelioma and then neoadjuvant sacs. Uh, so two straight areas. So I'm going to launch straight into mesothelioma. So our first line therapy right now is NIVO-IPI based on the Checkmate 743 study. Just remind everyone this is the updated survival look at the brown curve that's nivo ip first line look at 12 months 68 percent alive look at 24 months 41 percent arrive look at 36 months 23 percent alive just think about that and register that because it's quite useful looking at some of the stuff i'm going to show you now the median in this study went from 14 to 18 months median overall survival 23% crossover rate to immunotherapy in the chemo arm. And if you look at the curves by PDL1 positive or negative, or by histology epithelioid versus non-epithelioid, just concentrate on the brown curves and look again at those numbers. And you'll see consistently 60, 70% of people alive at, at 12 months, consistently around 40% of people alive roughly at 24 months and about 20 odd at 
36 months. So that's quite interesting, consistent efficacy. So what's the next big thing in mesothelioma? Well, the thing we're all waiting for is just what happened in lung cancer. We had immunotherapy and then we had all the data on chemo immunotherapy. So the meso world is on tender hooks waiting for these trials to report three international randomized studies comparing chemotherapy to chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. And the reason to bring this up is the IND227 study at the bottom reported its results at ASCO. So this is a Canadian, French and Italian uh, uh, study 444 patients to six cycles of platinum pemetrexed or six cycles to platinum pemetrexed plus pembro and then maintenance pembro for two years. Primary endpoint overall survival. Italy poured patients into this and the Canadians did very well as well. Fantastic effort. You'll see that three quarters of the patients had epithelioid disease. Of the non epithelioids, they were split fairly evenly between biphasic and sarcomatoid. About 60% in both arms were PDL1 positive and an equal balance by the EORTC prognostic score. Now, if you look at how many cycles of chemo was given, about you know, about half half got cis versus carbo. Dose delays were balanced in both arms, dose reductions relatively well balanced, and discontinuations due to AEs, you know, reasonably well balanced, slight imbalance with carboplatin, but nothing too much there. Here's the bottom line money shot. This is the overall survival curve presented. You'll see the median goes from 16 months to 17.2 months. The hazard ratio is 0.79, it's positive. Look at the two year landmark, 39%, three year landmark, 25%. So, okay, it's positive. The curves don't look very far apart, but very, very similar data to what we've seen with Checkmate 743. Can't say that it looks better, can we? If you look at uh, crossover rates in the, um, uh, the uh, chemo IO, 17 patients went on to receive subsequent IO, but obviously much higher crossover rates in the non-IO arm. This is the forest plot. Basically, there isn't much to sort of see in this that I think we need to dwell on too much. But if you look at histology, you see what we saw in Checkmate 743. If you look on the right-hand curve, non-epithelioid, you see that chemo does badly. But the immunotherapy, chemo-immunotherapy combo arm, is behaving consistently between epithelioid and non-epithelioid if you look at the landmark survival figures at two and three years. And if you then also look by PDL1, again, similar landmarks, the curves don't look very far apart at all, but 40 odd percent of people alive at two years, 20 plus percent of people arrive at three years. Response rate consistently higher. Uh, with the combination of chemo and immunotherapy and notable that in non-epithelioids on the left, the response rate is very low to chemo alone. So the addition of pembrolizumab to standard chemo did deliver a statistically significant and, um, and they claim clinically significant overall survival benefit, PFS benefit and a response rate benefit and the treatment was tolerable. Um, the discussant uh, commented on this, if you look at the table at the top, this is comparing response rate, PFS, and OS figures in all arms between Checkmate 743 and this study, and you'll see they're not very different at all. Um, notable that when you look on the bottom two tables, the only outcome that's distinctly statistically positive with non-overlapping confidence intervals is Checkmate 743 PL1 positive CISPEM versus NIVO IP, and that's the bottom right-hand corner. So 
The conclusion by the discussant, is this a new regimen that improves outcomes? Yes, it does. Is it meaningful? Well, it's a month. Um, were the patients appropriate? Were the controls appropriate? Yes, I think so. And where does this fit? Well, it's a option, isn't it? It's a potential new first line option. But this is really disappointing, I think, from the meso community. Uh, we were hoping to see stellar data better than 743. What we're seeing is not much different. Really does put a bit of a downer on the whole flavor of everything. Um, the Dreamer 3 study is still going on. It's had its control arm changed to NIVOIPI and now is purely restricted to epithelioid patients. Beat Meso, I'm thankful to say, completed accrual a while ago and we await the results. So that's that. Moving to a completely different study, um, Peter Slosarek from BARTS conducted this excellent study called Atomic Meso presented at AACR. This is a phase two, three study looking at arginine deprivation in non-epithelioid mesothelioma uh, feeding on from the ADAM phase two study. And this is a randomized study. So patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to CIS-PEM for up to six cycles, uh, plus the subcutaneous injection of ADI-PEG20 uh, versus placebo, obviously including chemotherapy. Primary endpoint of this study was overall survival. It was well balanced by stage. You'll see about 50% of the patients were sarcomatoid and about 50% biphasic. This is the overall outcome. So it's a positive study. The median went from 7.7 .7 to 9.3 months. Interesting. Uh, but obviously the, the issue with this is that um, immunotherapy is really the thing that we're all excited about in, in uh, uh, non-epithelioid uh, 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 mesothelioma, slightly more toxicity, particularly hematological in the investigation arm. And so this is a potential option. It would um, um, reasonably safe, reasonably well tolerated, interesting, but not sure this will take off. The last meso study I want to go to is a phase one study. So this is a YAP inhibitor. Timothy Yap, our ex-colleague from London, who managed to uh, exceed terminal velocity, escape of the gravitational pull of our domain and settle in, in the MD Anderson where he's been thriving, presented this fantastic study. This is all to do with the HIPPO pathway, which is quite complicated. Uh, but if you look at uh, the table, the graph on the left, that outlines some of the characters in the HIPPO system. It's a very complex system, but a large number of mesothelioma patients have inactivation of NF2, which is a suppressor of the HIPPO pathway. So if that gets inactivated, the HIPPO pathway is overactive, and the end effector right at the bottom is this transcription factor called YAP. And what happens with YAP is to get activated, it needs to undergo a process called palmitylation with another uh, protein called TEED, um, and then it becomes active and transcriptionally changes the function of the cancer cell. So what this drug is, VT3989, is it's a chemical, a, an inhibitor that gets into the palmitate pocket um, and therefore, therefore inhibiting palmitylation uh, and therefore inhibiting the transcriptional activity of YAP. Oh God, I've lost my scrolling ability. Here we go. So this is a very early phase study, dose escalation, phase two. Let's cut to the chase. We don't need to spend too much time on this. This is the waterfall plot, multiple patients with multiple tumor sites. The purple ones are all meso patients. And you can see a sizable number of meso patients are responding to this. 
And you can see that many of these patients have NF2 mutations, but not everyone. So it's not a black and white story. Um, duration of treatment seems reasonable. So a phase one study, very early, but interesting. Something new, something potentially molecularly targetable for our meso patients. And perhaps if this develops into a bigger, more um, widely accepted treatment, we might be uh, genotyping meso patients routinely. I'm going to move swiftly, complete night's move, and talk about neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy in non-driver, non-small cell lung cancer. So we've been doing surgery for a long time. We know that if you add adjuvant chemo after surgery, you get a benefit. And we also know that adjuvant immunotherapy uh, in power can help. Uh, that's a tezolizumab approved in our high PDL1 patients by the MHRA and EMA, but in the FDA approved in anything above 1%. Always be conscious that the staging has moved from uh, the seventh to the eighth edition with a slight change in the staging. So 1B in the eighth edition is, is not eligible. It's stage two. A, 2B, and 3A, with some 3Bs actually, uh, but that's relevant. What we're talking about here is neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. So you're all aware of Checkmate 816, the, uh, the, the stuff that has come online in the NHS in the last few months, three cycles of neoadjuvant chemo IO, followed by surgery and nothing else. Another alternative is to use neoadjuvant chemo IO surgery and then adjuvant immunotherapy. Now, Checkmate 816, you all know the study design, three cycles of chemo IO or chemo, then surgery within six weeks, fantastic benefit, massive path CR8, massive major pathological response rate, all subgroups benefit, 17% path CR rate, even in PDL1 negative patients. And uh, notable that this had a third arm that no one talks about where they just gave Nivoipi, an exploratory arm, and the path CR rate in that arm was 20%. I'll come on to the relevance of that a bit later. But here we've got the event-free survival curves, the overall survival curves, and the collapse in distant metastases as a result of the delivery of only three cycles of neoadjuvant chemo IO. So several studies have reported at AACR and ASCO, and I'm just going to quickly whiz through some of them. So Aegean is Devalumab, so chemo plus Devalumab, or just chemo placebo, four cycles, surgery, and then a year of devalumab if you're in the uh, IO arm. And this study basically um, uh, predominantly stage 3A patients, PDL1 expression a third, a third, a third. Um, patients were allowed to have carbo or cisplatin. Um, most of the patients underwent surgery, but about 20% didn't. It's worth remembering that a portion of patients won't ever get onto surgery. Most of these patients had R0 resections, and the number of patients that start post-surgical immunotherapy is a fraction of the people that go in initially. And you know, many patients discontinue for whatever reason. The PATH CR rate is 17%, the MPR rate is 33%. All patients benefit across histology, perhaps never smokers, not so much. Uh, PDL1 expression. PDL1 negative patients less benefit, but about 9% of these patients had a, a path CR who were PDL1 negative. That's the event free survival. Look at 24 months, 63% event free survival. And so this is another study that looks very similar to Checkmate 816. And then at ASCO, we had two studies Keynote 671, MSD, Pembrolizumab, basically almost identical study, chemo Pembro or chemo placebo with a year of Pembro. This was four cycles, 
no patients, um, all patients could go in, including a small number of EGFR-NALC patients. And then the NeoTorch study is a study from the Far East using a P1 inhibitor called Toripalumab, and very similar design, except three cycles of chemo given before surgery, one cycle after surgery, and then a year of your immunotherapy. What do these studies all show? Well, the PATH-CR rates are very similar, 24%, 18%, 24%, 17%. Not much difference there. The major pathological response on all these studies looks very similar. The event-free survival looks very similar. Hazard ratios 0 0.58, 0 0.68, 0 0.68, 0 0.4. The event-free survival landmark at 24 months is 63% or 62% in almost all the studies. Extraordinarily similar results. Very immature survival data, lots of sensor points. Don't want to overinterpret this, but a strong suggestion that this will translate into a bona fide survival benefit. So does having that year of immunotherapy after your neoadjuvant treatment make any benefit? We don't know. It hasn't been prospectively tested. We need to prospectively test that. But a very interesting comment from one of the discussants said, look at the Checkmate 816 curves in patients who had or did not have a PATH-CR. And if you look at the curve on the left, you will see that patients that had no PATH-CR who had immunotherapy, the green lower curve and the gray lower curve are very, very similar. But if you look at patients that didn't have a PATH-CR on Keynote 671 and NeoTorch, you see that the curves seem to separate. Maybe, maybe, tantalizingly, that might be the effect of the post-operative immunotherapy. Who knows? Um, there, are, there was an update uh, on Checkmate 816 focusing on the patients, the 20% of patients who didn't get surgery, who we're very concerned about. And what we see is many of these patients did get subsequent therapy, ranging from radiotherapy and uh, systemic therapy. And you can see on the right, the patients who don't end up surgery, having surgery, do seem to have quite bad outcomes, as you could imagine. And the last thing I want to leave with you is this. So this is East Energy, uh, a Japanese study where they said, let's get rid of the chemo altogether. Let's just see what immunotherapy can do. They used pembrolizumab with ramucirumab, so antivascular plus uh, checkpoint inhibitor. So patients had two cycles of this, went straight on to surgery and fascinating MPR rate 50%, PATH CR rate 25%, really good um, waterfall plot there. So overall message, neoadjuvant chemo IO is the standard for operable disease. There is a gray area between what's operable and inoperable, not really for this thing, but we do need better definition. We need to prospectively validate post-neoadjuvant therapies. And we also need to look at which patients need de-escalation or intensification. So the patients who have a PATH-CR, do they actually need anything else? Can we just leave them alone? The patients without PATH-CR, can we improve their outcomes by intensifying treatment? And can we deliver a chemo-free option for some patients? And that's it. Orielz, thank you very much for that that uh, superb overview. Let's take um, a few questions uh, uh, for um, what you've uh, uh, talked about. So um, one of the questions that's come in is in the sort of 816 setting, preoperative chemo IO, we know that we're restricted to the EGFR wild type uh, ALK wild type uh, group. What happens when you find an exon 20 insertion or a uh, um, RET or a ROS? Are they still eligible for preoperative chemo IO? 
Well, many of the patients are, many of the genotypes are actually eligible. If you go and look at the blue tech form for um, uh, Checkmate uh, 816, it doesn't exclude many, many actionable mutations. Um, my personal view is that the group of patients that you would think wouldn't respond to immunotherapy, I probably wouldn't offer this to, right? So what I mean by that is, my sort of the, the cohort who are lifelong never smokers. So I don't think personally this is the right treatment for an ALK, an EGFR, a ROS1, a HER2 uh, insertion. Uh, but outside of that, um, you know, these things haven't been prospectively validated in those molecular subtypes. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, actually, uh, to, to, to be honest with you. I think that's very correct. Um, so I'm going to ask you about uh, the perioperative setting now, just focusing on that. You know, we now have 816 preoperative only, several trials preoperative, postoperative. Um, you know, the first of those reported is a GN. We also have Neotorch and Keynote 671. So undoubtedly, a GN and uh, Keynote 671 will be coming to the UK at some point soon, um, presumably before ASCO next year in routine clinical practice. Right? So many centers in the UK are still struggling with implementation of 816. What do we do, right? Is who needs preoperative and who should just have adjuvant? And I guess who should have both? Well, I, I, my personal view is you read, I mean, this is the biggest thing to happen in lung cancer since immunotherapy came along, right? This is massive. And I think the benefit of neoadjuvant chemo-IO in the operable patients is so great, it's borderline clinically negligent not to offer it. And I do think there will be court cases in the future where patients who relapse feel that they've been hard done by by not being offered the treatment. So we need to be, we need to be very careful about what we document. We need to be very careful about exactly what's written in MDM outcomes. If patients aren't for this treatment, it needs to be very clear cut as to why that it was considered and it was felt inappropriate for reasons A, B, C, and D, right? So, I, I mean, I, I just think the data is overwhelming. I mean, the, you know, PATH-CR, major PATH-CR, the event-free survival, the very strong suggestion that this is going to translate into an overall survival benefit, it's astonishing. And then the lower pneumonectomy rate, the, the collapse in, in relapse with distant metastases, this is only three cycles of neoadjuvant chemo immunotherapy. I, I, I find it extraordinary that such a short period of treatment could deliver such massive impacts on patient outcomes. And the thing to remember is any strategy that involves giving a patient something after surgery is going to have a drop off. Patients get infections, they get post-operative physiological change that makes them ineligible for, for subsequent systemic anti-cancer treatment. The drop off is massive. When patients come to us untreated naive we can treat a large number of them i think that i think that's right you know i think the the outcomes of path cr are, are just you know spectacular we've never seen anything like it so we really must try and offer that to our patients if uh, if at all possible i'm going to just focus in lastly on the world of meso i know you're passionate about this so what are we going to do what are we going to offer our patients nevo ipi ind227 or adi peg which is the winner who gets what, or does everybody still get uh, Nevo AP? Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So I, I think ADI PEG in non-epithelioid is going to have a tricky run because immunotherapy is is 
is so amazing for these yeah. patients it, that yeah. you, you literally see patients who are in a terrible state of health, but still PS1, of course, who, who, who improve dramatically uh, when exposed to these treatments. Um, I, think, I think the reality is if you give chemo IO, you have to deal with the toxicities of chemo and the toxicities of IO. If you just give IO, you only have to deal with the toxicities of IO. So to my mind, Checkmate 743 Nivo Ipi, I agree it's a little bit hotter than just single agent immunotherapy. I'm not going to disagree with that. But I do think I've got less problems on my desk in terms of micromanaging a patient through that treatment than I have if I'm introducing chemo as well. And it, when I, when I, I mean, I mean that in terms of the whole service, you know, patients are coming in, they're having treatment, they're going home. Yeah. We've got really good established support systems for people on immunotherapy. So I, I, I'm struggling to see how the chemo, how that's going to become a, an option. Yeah, great. Thank you for your your, your views. And Riaz, uh, I'd just like to thank you for your presentation and in the interest of time. We'll just wrap up this uh, uh, session. Uh, I'd like to very much thank our uh, three speakers for flying straight in and straight onto their laptops for uh, getting the slides hot off the press and presenting the data uh, to you. And thank you very much for working hard over the weekend to make these presentations available to uh, BTOG members, uh, Yvonne, Riaz and Tom. Thank you very much for everything that you do for BTOG and the BTOG uh, community it really is absolutely great. Our next online event is going to be a World Lung Update, World Lung in an Hour, at some point in September to be confirmed. World Lung, let me tell you, is promising to be another amazing Congress. There's going to be practice changing data presented there. There. So we do hope to uh, update all of you on the data in due course. And let me tell you, ESMO 2023 is going to be spectacular. There is going to be undoubtedly practice changing data presented there. So that we'll be doing another update in October 2023. So do make sure that you keep those dates free when they are announced. Finally, our next in-person event for BTOG is our lung cancer screening update. If you're interested in screening and you're part of the screening community, do register. We have our uh, in-person update all day on Friday the 6th of October based in London. And our newest event is going to occur in December. It's going to be an update for any early lung cancer uh, oncologist. So a new oncologist uh, treating lung cancer within five years of taking up a consultant post. We want you, we want to discuss uh, all the issues around who you choose, which therapy to, and you'll be able to hear from the experts and you'll find out more of this in due course. Thank you very much for your uh, attention. Thank you very much for your um, uh, questions. I do hope you found it useful and do continue to support us in everything that we do for all of you in terms of our outputs. And with that, have a great evening. Thank you very much.